Okay, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Glad to have everyone out this morning. Acts 21, while you're finding your place, I'm going to go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Ask His blessings in the service today. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you so much for the day that you've given us, Lord, for the time together, Lord. And I thank you that we do have the uh, the freedom to meet together. I thank you, Lord, that uh, we have your word before us, Lord, to read and to study. We thank you for your goodness toward us. Lord, just thank you for each person who's gathered here today, for their desire to hear from your word, their desire to fellowship with the uh, with other believers, Lord, we just pray, Lord, asking your blessings on the service. We ask you, Lord, that you would guide and direct me as I teach and preach, Lord. I just pray that you give me clarity of mind and help me to have a right understanding of your word. I pray, Lord, that you just please be with each person here, that they would uh, gain from the service exactly what's needed. pray, Lord, to be encouragement in their life. It would draw them closer to you, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you be with those who are still on their way out, uh, that you'd watch over them, be with those who are unable to, to be with us today due to work or travel or whatever. And Lord, we just ask you that you'd help us as a church to be a, a light and a witness in this community you've placed us in. I just pray that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel. Help us, Lord, to uh, sh- uh, share your, your love and your compassion on those that are around us. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. And amen. Okay, so we are in the book of Acts, and we are coming toward the last part of the, the book, really. And... Um, we are at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, we know the first first journey he took was up through the region of Galatia, and it was fairly short circuit. And then uh, he went back and reported, and he went on his second journey. And on his second journey, it took him uh, much further uh, over into Europe. And then on his third journey, he has went back, uh, revisited those areas, and expanded on those areas. And where we were at last week, he um, is traveling back to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. He has come back out of Europe, traveled across into Asia, and he has just barely touched down um, just to the west of Ephesus. He doesn't come all the way to Ephesus, but he stops on a coastal or stops in a coastal town, and the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the Ephesian churches, um, came out to meet him there, and he sat down and talked with them and gave them some final instructions. He was going through, and for one thing, he told them that this was his final final trip there. That was a fi- the final time that they were going to, to see him. Uh, they would not see his face another time. And so anyway, uh, as he was imparting this last bit of instruction, he was warning them about the enemies from without. He says there's going to be uh, false teachers that come into your midst and mislead the people, try to burden them down with essentially legalism, with trying to keep the law, trying to do all these different things in an effort to appease God. Basically what you see in every uh, about every religion, it is a an effort by our works in order to earn or to merit salvation or God's uh, God's blessing and God's, God's good graces. And so he said these false teachers are going to come in, but he says you also have to be careful because there will be those who rise up out of your midst. There's going to be believers, there's going to be even pastors amongst you that are going to get a, a hunger for power or a hunger for uh, for wealth, and they're going to use God's church to try to exalt themselves or try to enrich themselves. And so they were to also be paying attention to their own hearts, not just looking at uh, those on the outside, not just examining other teachers, but making sure to keep their own hearts right and make sure that they kept in mind that they were uh, that they were ministering, they were under shepherds to God's flock. Okay, And so that was one of the risks that they were facing. So they had to remember that the sheep, that the believers belonged to Jesus and they were there to feed and to lead, to guide them. Um, he lifted up himself as an example, and he told them, you know how I've lived in front of you. My life has been an open book. You have seen my manner of living. I've practiced what I've preached, and I am uh, blameless before you. I have 
uh, told you all things that were needful for you, both the difficult and the good. And so I have not withheld any kind of uh, teaching, any kind of counsel that was profitable for you, that was beneficial to you. And so he's encouraging the, the pastors there, the elders, to live in such a way as being examples to the flock, to live lives that are above reproach, to make sure that they are caring for the needs of the sheep, to make sure that they don't uh, go astray, don't fall away from the Lord, and that they continue to put the needs of the sheep before even their own lives. And so this is what he's encouraging them to do. And so whenever he ends this, he uh, tells them, as I said, you'll see my face no more. I'm leaving and I'm out of here. Uh, he still loves them. He's going to uh, later on send them the epistle to the Ephesians that we have recorded in Scripture. But he's going to be spending most of the rest of his life uh, imprisoned. So he's not going to have the freedom to go about uh, traveling like he once did. Not only that, but he feels as if, or maybe I can't say how he feels, but it seems that he feels that his work there is finished, that he has done what he was, uh, what he was led there to do. And so whenever his job is done, um, you quit, right? You, you, you move on. And so essentially that, that's what he did. He said, okay, I, I finished the book. Now I'm going to close it. I'm going to move on to the next place. And so anyway, uh, at the very end of the chapter, in, ver in chapter 20, uh, I know I turned to 21, but I'll just read the, the uh, final three verses because it sets up chapter 21. So Acts 20, verse 36 says, And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course unto Coos, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence to Patera. And so anyway, as we see these verses, Paul is getting ready to leave. He wraps up his teaching. The ship is there. It's finished loading. It's time for him to get on the boat. And I almost imagine that the captain of the ship is hurrying him along. He's there and he's having trouble getting away from the people. Whenever we read there in verse or in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, after we were gotten from them. The idea was that he was having a hard time getting away. And so I can imagine the captain of the ship saying, Paul, it's time to go. Well, they didn't have watches back then, but you know, <laughs> it's time to go. We're, we're loaded up. We're ready. Paul, come on. And so they were weeping, they were praying together, they were saying their final farewells, their final goodbyes, and Paul got on the ship and sailed away from there. And it's encouraging to me, it's a blessing to me to see the connection of the believers here. Uh, Paul spent quite a bit of time in Ephesus. He left for, like I said, about a year and a half. He came back and spent just those few days there with the Ephesian believers, or maybe not even that long. And anyway, uh, as he was leaving, there was just such a connection, such a kindred spirit amongst them that they cared for one another's well-being. They cared for one another's presence for their company. There was a love for one another. And that is something that is um, encouraging for us. It's something that is an example for us that there should be that sort of love for the believers, okay, that kind of care for each other. And so we see that going on. And as he pulls away from them, as he has gotten away from them and starts this journey through these different places, once again, he is sailing fairly quickly. They're hugging the edge of the coast, and they are just jumping from port to port to port as the, the ship is unlading its goods. Maybe he's going from uh, boat to boat. I'm not sure if it's the same one or if it's different ones. But he's just kind of using it almost like a, a bus service or a taxi service, going from place to place as he's going around here. And then when we come to verse number two, and I'm going to go ahead and read down through uh, verse 14. But in verse number two, it says, And finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. And when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed in Tyre, uh, excuse me, landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlay her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days 
who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him to the deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when he heard these things, we, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not uh, be persuaded, we ceased saying that the will of the Lord be done. And so anyway, in this passage of Scripture, we're seeing Paul heading steadily toward uh, toward Jerusalem, okay? Um, I brought my map out. I'll go ahead and... Some of you all have seen this before. I had it stuck on the wall for a while. But this gives you an idea of where all we've been talking about. But I'll hold it up here. And so what's going on here in the blue line is Paul's third journey. And he's at the end of it. He went through... Um, Thessalonica to Berea down to Corinth and then he backtracked remember he was going to go from Corinth across and they were lying in wait to capture him right and so he determined to come back through here he came back and around and he's just kind of following the coast along and anyway he comes back around through here and this is the final journey this is when he finds a uh, finds a ship headed toward uh or was it said? Anyway, back to Asia. And so he is going back and around. He lands over here. And so this would have been an ocean-going vessel, right? Rather than just taking the little tiny boats that hopped along the coast, he gets a big ship that's going all the way back to the regions around Israel. Okay? And whenever it says we left uh, Cyprus on our left hand, they sailed close to the island. They were able to, to see it from the boat, and it would have been an exciting time as the lookouts were calling out and saying that, you know, there's land over here and they're sailing past the island. And Paul has spent time on that island before. If you notice the green line, that was their first journey whenever he went with Barnabas. Barnabas ended up going back to Cyprus and having a ministry there. That's where Barnabas was originally from. So I can imagine as Paul and his, uh, his entourage is traveling by Cyprus and they see the land as they're going by. There's many memories that's being stirred up of his time that was back there several years prior. He's probably thinking of uh, Barnabas. He's probably thinking of different people from those cities. But anyway, he's sailing past Cyprus at the end of his third journey, thinking back to the beginning of his first one. I think that's kind of interesting. And so anyway, he, he lands back over here. Uh, let me see. In Tyre, which is just... A little ways away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's down here. So he goes from Tyre, comes down here, and then Jerusalem is inland. And that's where he ends up at. So if you have a little bit of an idea, that's all the area that he's traveled. Okay? So, of course, Italy, Greece, and then over here is where they say Asia. So you've got Ephesus here. Okay? Does that help clarify anything, or is my... <laughs> Okay, and so most of you probably have maps in the back of your Bible. You can see all of his travels there. I don't want to stay too long on a geography lesson. And uh, don't want to stay too long with a geography lesson, but I just want us to see how Paul is traveling and how he's jumping from place to place. And so all these little places that we talked about, Coos and Rose and Patara, those are uh, over there just around from Ephesus, just jumping around the coast. He gets down to this final place and finds the ship. He sails over, 
arrives at Tyre. And it says that whenever they came to Tyre, the ship was going to spend some time in port unloading. Okay, must have had quite a bit of cargo. And so they had quite a bit of time there. And it says that, excuse me, it says that while they were there, they tarried for seven days. So I don't know if the ship took seven days to unload and reload, but whatever it was, it took seven days. And during that time uh, that they were there, it says they found disciples. And the, the words that are used there for them finding the disciples, it's finding by searching. They knew that there were Christians in that area, and they looked them up. They hunted for them. And so whenever they found them, it wasn't necessarily that the, the church was well acquainted with them, but Paul came into the area. He looked for them. Whenever he found them, he spent these seven days with them. It wouldn't have been a church that Paul had planted. It wouldn't have been a work that was familiar with him. But after seven days' time, they were quite familiar with one another. Okay, Just in a very short amount of time, because of... Uh, the bond between believers, the witness of the Holy Spirit between them, it connected them to each other, okay? And so they tarried seven days, and it says that they said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And this is kind of what I want to focus on for the next little bit, is all of the times that Paul is being discouraged from going to Jerusalem. There is a bit of a division that takes place between uh, Bible scholars about this, okay? Some say that Paul had ample warnings and that he was disobedient to God whenever he went up to Jerusalem, that he wasn't supposed to do that. And I don't believe that for a minute, okay? I don't believe it for a minute because we see from Paul's life, from his writings, from the way that he lived, that he was very much, uh, he was very much following the Spirit's guidance wherever he went. There are plenty of times where the Holy Spirit forbade him to go certain places. There were times where he was being very careful for the Spirit to lead him and for him to uh, be submitted to God's will, okay? And so he was very careful to do that always. Another thing, and I brought this up before, is that from his very first time of meeting with the Lord, whenever the Lord dealt with him on uh, the Damascus Road, whenever Ananias came and... Uh, preached the gospel to him, basically, and baptized him. Uh, he was warned from the very beginning that he would suffer great things and that he would be a witness, he would preach the gospel to kings and to leaders and people in high places, okay? He's been desiring to go to Rome for some time, and he was willing, if it was necessary, to give his life for the gospel. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so for him to just stubbornly and uh, for him just to stubbornly go to Jerusalem against the Holy Spirit, against God's will, uh, with plenty of warnings ahead of time that he was going to end up bound or end up giving his life would have been stupid, right? But what we find is that Paul had the guiding of the Holy Spirit, the Lord was leading him here. But all throughout this journey, the Lord was revealing to him, as well as all of the believers, what was going to happen ahead of time. God was preparing his servant and his servants before it happened. And so in this verse, people get a hold of this verse in verse number four, and says that they said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. They take that as a command that the Holy Spirit is commanding him not to go to Jerusalem. But what happened in this verse, what I believe is happening in this verse, is the Holy Spirit revealed to them what was going to happen to Paul. It revealed to the, the Holy Spirit revealed to them that Paul was going to be imprisoned, that he was going to be beaten, that he was going to suffer in Jerusalem. And so what would the believer's response be to that revelation? Yeah, don't go there. And so that was their application of the message that they had received. The Holy Spirit revealed to them that Paul was going to suffer, and their response was, Paul, don't go there. And a lot of times that's kind of our way of looking at things as well, is that we want to avoid difficulties, we want to avoid hardship, and if we know that something's going to bring about difficulty or hardship, we try to stay away from it, we try to prevent it, right? 
and even in the lives of one another. But unfortunately for Paul, Paul knew what God was leading him to do. Paul knew what the Lord's will was, but all those around him, even the people who loved him, was discouraging him from doing God's will. I think that's interesting. This would have been something that would have been difficult for Paul because he had plenty of people who loved him, plenty of people who wanted to see him live a long life, have a long ministry, but God's will was something different for him. God's will wasn't peace and prosperity. God's will was him basically being a frontline soldier marching into the heat of the battle. And God had used him mightily in that. And yes, Paul said, I bear in my body the marks of the cross. There was plenty of times that he was uh, beaten and left for dead, times that he was shipwrecked, uh, years that he spent in prison. But God used all of those things for Paul's good. And Paul is reaping eternal rewards and benefits for the sacrifices that he made. But for Paul's good and for the cause of Christ. And so Paul says, I'm willing not only to be bound, but to give up my life if that's what God has in front of me. But he has multiple people who are coming to him and saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. They're begging him here. And so we see that going on in verse number four. And so he spends the seven days with them. And whenever they accomplished those days, uh, they departed. And it says that they brought him uh, on their way with their wives and their children and so this is interesting, if you can picture this in your head. This is complete strangers seven days prior. Paul and his, his crew landed there, didn't know anyone there. He searched them out. They spent some days with them. And Paul was able to teach and to preach and to help them and encourage them. And they were able to encourage Paul, but they also discouraged him from doing what God had for him. And so as Paul is leaving, the entire group, the families and all, wives, children, all of it, was coming and seeing Paul and the other guys off, sending them off on their way. And so they take and leave one another in verse 6. Uh, verse 7, they finished their course from Tyre, came into Ptolemus, saluted the brethren and abode with them for one day. Okay, the saluting isn't. It is a formal greeting. It is taking time and checking on one another's welfare, and it's a, a warm greeting of one another. But they were only there a day. They went onward, and the next day they came into Caesarea and entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist. This is Philip, one of the seven who were appointed as deacons back in Acts chapter 7. Okay, Remember whenever the widows were neglected in the daily ministration, and the apostle said, it's not meet that we should uh, leave the word of God and serve tables. And so they said, search out for seven men of good report who's accompanied us, all these different things. And they appointed to them seven. One of them was Philip. And so we find out that Philip was no longer at Jerusalem. He went down to uh, Caesarea. He was living there. He had four daughters. His four daughters had the gift of prophecy at that time. So Old Testament type prophecy. This is a time of transition. And there is no mention whatsoever that the daughters prophesied at this time. We kind of assume because there are others who it's revealed to them that Paul is going to suffer at Jerusalem, right? But it never says that Philip's daughters say anything about it. Just a, an interesting side note. And so verse 10, And when we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus, now, we've met Agabus before. Do you remember him? Agabus was the one that came and prophesied that there would be a great drought and famine in Jerusalem. And when uh, Paul had heard about this, he had determined to take up this offering through the Gentile regions to send back uh, help, to send back relief to the, the believers at Jerusalem. Do you remember that? So he's established as a prophet. He prophesied the, fa the famine. The famine happened. Okay, and so now he's coming, and what he does is in the style of the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Elijah, uh, he takes Paul's girdle, it'd been like the belt that he wrapped around, a linen belt that he wrapped around to keep his, his garments together. He took his girdle and bound up, let me see here, took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet 
So he tied himself up, like hog tied himself, okay? And said, this is what's going to happen to the owner of this bell, okay? And that would have made it abundantly clear what was going on. He said, okay, if everyone's not getting the idea just simply through words, let's, let's try an uh, illustration. And so in a dramatic sense, he shows him and says, Paul, you're going to be in prison. You're going to be bound. You're going to be chained up. And um, halfway through verse 11, it says, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So that's a little bit more of a full revelation about what's going to happen. You're going to be bound, and you're going to end up under uh, Roman imprisonment. And that's exactly what happens, right? And so the response to that, verse 12, and when we, that's Luke that is speaking first person there, when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. So now this is spreading. It's not just uh, those few people that was there uh, in, uh, in Tyre that's begging him not to go. Now all of the people who are traveling with him. Anyone remember all of his traveling companions? I'm not saying to recite their names, but he's got people that are from each of the cities that churches were planted in. He's got people that are from uh, Corinth, people who are from Thessalonica, people who are from uh, Philippi, from uh, Berea from Ephesus from uh, all of these places as he has went he has people that are following him so he's got a large company of people who are traveling with him and obviously Luke is there maybe Timothy Titus some of the others and so they said all of us who have traveled with Paul who Paul has invested in all these people who love Paul is saying please don't go up to Jerusalem in addition to them also, the people who are at Caesarea are begging him, please don't go up to Jerusalem. Uh, Agabus, uh, uh, let's see, Philip and his daughters, all of these people are saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul's response in verse 13, Paul answered, what mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so what's going on in this is there is a very strong connection between Paul and these believers. Okay, Paul has a heart for them. They are his sheep. He has been a shepherd to them, right? And so they're coming to him, and they're begging him. They are pleading with him, don't go to Jerusalem. And so he's being pulled in two different directions. He's got these people that he loves that is saying, stay with us. Don't go down to Jerusalem. Don't let this happen. And he's got the Holy Spirit. He's got the Lord leading him basically into the belly of the beast. God is saying, go forward into this that is going to be difficult. Go forward into this where there is going to be suffering. Go forward into this where it's going to be unknown. And then the people who love him are saying, just stay here and stay safe. And Paul's in the middle of this, pulled between the two of them, and he has to decide what to do. Am I going to do what I want to do, what my flesh wants to do? Because Paul doesn't want imprisoned. He doesn't want to get beat again. He doesn't want to be killed, Right? He says, I'm willing, but nobody wants that. So does he do what his flesh wants? Does he do what the believers want? Stay with them. He could minister to them. He could be uh, very profitable to these people and have a great and a long ministry in all of these areas if he would stay out of jail. No doubt the, the belief, the, the argument that they would have is what good are you in a Roman prison? Right? Isn't that what it would look like? Everywhere the Holy Spirit is testifying, everywhere there's people prophesying, you are going to be bound, you're going to be imprisoned, possibly even die. And so I can imagine some of these people coming to Paul and saying, what good are you dead? What good are you in prison? What good is your ministry? What about all of these places you're wanting to go? Paul, you're wanting to go to Rome. You're wanting to go over to Spain. You're wanting to go to all these regions beyond. You're not wanting your ministry to just end here in you know, Ephesus and Corinth. You're wanting to go beyond all of that. You've got such a great vision. What good is it going to do for you to go and get yourself killed? And that would make sense, wouldn't it? And so the reason I'm stressing all of this is that in our lives, there are times that we have decisions that we must make where we are being pulled in multiple directions. 
God is leading us in one direction. If we are following the Lord, if we are desiring his will, if we are seeking his path for us, God will lead us in a direction that usually requires faith. A lot of times it's not going to make sense for us. Okay? But on the other hand, in our flesh, we're going to be reasoning things out. We're going to be seeking comfort. We're going to be seeking certainty. We're going to be seeking predictability, right? And then even those around us that love us, this is where it gets difficult. Whenever we have people that we love and we respect that are then standing against God, we have to make a choice and say, do we follow ourselves? Do we follow you know, all of these other people? Or do we serve God even whenever it doesn't make sense to anybody? Okay. Now, the Bible does tell us that in the multitude of counsel, there is safety. It doesn't tell us to stubbornly go and follow what we believe is God's will, that God can use other people to guide and direct. But whenever God has directed, whenever God has shown you what his will is, it doesn't matter how much your flesh is resisting it. It doesn't matter how much those who, uh, even those who love and care about you, are trying to hang on to you. You are best off to follow God. Right? And that's difficult, isn't it? And so all through this, we can see that Paul would have been been dealing with many different emotions. This would have been a very stressful time on Paul. And I think a lot of times we miss that whenever we're reading through Scripture, whenever we're just going through the book of Acts, we're not paying attention to how Paul is going to be affected by the, the things around him. Paul is a normal human being like you and I, okay? He has a lot of the same things that happened to him in his life, a lot of the same feelings and emotions as what you and I have, okay? And so all of these things are pulling on him, are weighing on him, but in the end of this, he said, I have to follow God, okay? And I know I've shared plenty of times in the past, there are plenty of people in my life who have resisted who have tried to talk me out of following the Lord. There are plenty of people who would be happy for me to stay close and stay in safety rather than being where God would have me to be. Okay? And the same thing is going to happen for each and every one of you. There are going to be times whenever there is a temptation for you to waver. There's going to be times that there's a temptation for you to abandon God's will for you to not follow his counsel and his word, and for you to do your own thing, or for you to err on the side of safety. But in reality, the safest place that any believer can ever be is in the center of God's will. Okay, That's the safest place any Christian can be. That doesn't mean that there's going to be no harm that befalls you. It's going to be that God is going to be in control. He's going to be protecting you, and nothing can happen to you unless he allows it. And the only things that he is going to allow is that which is good, for you, and that goes for his glory, okay? And so anyway, whenever he tells them this in Acts 21, verse 13, whenever he tells them, what well, I mean you to weep and to break mine heart, I am ready to not only be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus, okay? That's kind of an important part of that. He says, I'm not going up there just to die foolishly. I'm not just going up there to to try to prove something, he says, I'm going for the cause of Christ. I'm going to glorify Jesus in his life. That was, that was, that was his top priority, is that God gets his glory in all things. And so their response in verse number 14, and when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. They said, we're not getting anywhere with this. We're not going to convince him to disobey God. So let the Lord's will be done. And there's a lot of wisdom in that statement. We try to hang on to things. We try to convince people. We try to uh, manipulate circumstances and all these things. But we need to come to the place that we realize that God truly is in control. And I'm not talking about fatalism that, you know, you just take your hands off the wheel and let God do whatever because whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. But whenever you are seeking to follow God, there comes a time that you are at the end of what your responsibility is. You're at the end of what you are able to control, and you have to be okay with giving God the control over all of those other things. See, all we can do is make sure we're right with God, 
that we are following him, we're obedient to him. And then we've got to leave all the rest of it up to him because there's so much in this life that we can't control. And so anyway, they said, the will of the Lord be done. And that should be each of our desires, not our comfort, not our, uh, not our peace, not our prosperity, but God's will to be done, whether it be in prosperity or it be in persecution, God knows what's best and he knows what we need and he knows how to work all things together for good. And so it comes to the place where we say, thy will be done. And that's what they prayed. And so anyway, they loaded up there in verse 15. After those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. And there went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one, um, not sure exactly how to pronounce that name, Manasin of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now, a couple notes to make here. Paul is traveling with a group of Gentiles to Jerusalem, okay? And though there's many people who have been saved, the church has been started, a lot of things have changed. One thing that hasn't changed is there is still a prejudice against Gentiles. And so the fact that this Jew from, this Jewish believer from Cyprus went up with them and gave them a place to lodge was a big deal because there was going to be very few places in Jerusalem that Paul could stay with a group of Gentiles. Most Jews would not even allow a Gentile into their house. And you say, well, they're Christians now, they're believers, all that has changed. Well, in the passage that we're getting ready to dive into, we're going to find that though they may be believers, though they may have put their faith in Jesus, they are still Jews to the core and very little has changed. Okay? And so anyway, they come to, to Jerusalem. They come to this man's house that is going to, to uh, host them while they are there. In verse 17, it says that the brethren at Jerusalem received them gladly. So they had a warm reception whenever they came, but not like what they have gotten used to. Okay? We've been following Paul and his, uh, his I keep calling it an entourage. What's, what's something I could say with that? His ministry team? I mean, what would you say? But anyway, we, we're following Paul and his ministry team as they're going from place to place. And everywhere they go, people are excited to see them. They're begging them to stay. They're encouraging them. They're ministering to them. They are loving on them. And they get to Jerusalem and they are received with gladness. But it doesn't stay that way for long. Because if you remember, Paul has repeatedly been a, an object of the Jews' disdain. They don't like Paul. He's been marked as a troublemaker. Even whenever he came back previously to report in Jerusalem, uh, they were glad whenever they saw him go. Okay? And that's hard for us to process because we love Paul. You know, we have all of his writings and everything. But whenever he came to Jerusalem, they were glad to see him go because tensions mounted in Jerusalem. Why were tensions up? Because Paul was ministering to Gentiles and the Jews hated the Gentiles, even Jewish Christians. Okay? And so we look at this and we just we make assumptions that, okay, these were believers, they had it all together. But hey, you guys, most of you, as far as I know, you're believers. Do you have it all together? Do you have things that you still struggle with? Do you have things that you still stumble? Do you have hangups? Do you have prejudices? Yes. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so the Jews at that time did as well. And so whenever Paul came and he says, hey, I've been out amongst the Gentiles, they're like, stay away, you're filthy. They still had that idea that the Gentiles were unclean. By the way, we're Gentiles. Okay? And so they didn't like Paul. They didn't like him being there. And there was always this tension that was going to be there because the, the Jewish believers had enough problems with the Jewish unbelievers without throwing the Gentiles into the mix. Okay? And so anyway, whenever it says that they were received gladly in verse 17, verse 18, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, read several verses here. It says, in the day following, Paul went, excuse me, in the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry 
And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all of the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this, this that we say unto thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take, uh, excuse me, verse 24. Them take and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe and have written and concluded uh, that they observe no such things, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the, of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Okay, so I know I re read a, a larger passage of scripture there, but what's going on is Paul has just arrived in Jerusalem. He has come with this big group of, uh, I guess it would have been a mixed multitude, Jews and Greeks and Romans and all different uh, nationalities, Jews and Gentiles. They come with him as representatives of all the churches that he has started. They come to him or come with him with this collection that they have taken up. Y'all remember that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Paul had went through the area and he had been telling the Gentiles, the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, because of persecution, because of the famine, because of different things that have happened, they are in poverty. They are having difficulty. And so I'm taking up a collection to go back to Jerusalem and to assist with the needs of the Jewish believers. Okay, So he's coming with Gentiles, with Gentile money, to bring it to Jerusalem, to tell them about all that God is doing in the Gentile nations, and bring this money to the Jews, and he is hoping for unity. He is hoping that with bringing this money and all of this news, this is finally going to win over the Jewish believers so that they are accepting of the Gentiles. Paul doesn't want a, a division between the Jewish church and the Gentile church. He wants them to be one. Even Jesus himself said uh, in the passage we were preaching from last week that he had another flock that they didn't know of, and he was going to bring them together. They were going to be one flock and one shepherd. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles coming together to be one flock. Okay, And so Paul's hope is that this offering from the Gentiles and the word from the Gentiles, all the news of the things that have happened, is going to appease the Jews that they're going to be willing to accept the Gentiles after this, and it's going to mend this bond that is, or it's going to mend this, not a bond, this division that is between the two groups. Because Paul has a desire for his kinsmen. He has a desire for the Jews that the Jews be saved and that they also be free from the bondage that they are under. See, everywhere he's going, the Jews, even the Jewish believers, are trying to keep all the law, and they're trying to force it on the Gentiles. They already dealt with that in previous chapters, right? And so this is Paul's big hope in coming to Jerusalem. This is one of the reasons why he was so intent to come, why he was willing to face the persecution and the trials and everything that would happen, is he wanted to see the church grow. He wanted to see it strengthen. He wanted to see the believers bonded together in unity. He wanted to deliver this money. He wanted to do all of these things. He had high expectations. And in the passage that we just read, they went, right? You understand that? It went down quickly. And so anyway, they had these high expectations, but it, he comes to James the next day. They just arrived in Jerusalem. They have all this money to give, and they're going to meet with James. James and the, the deacons there at Jerusalem are going to be dispersing it amongst the church. And now 
the church at Jerusalem would have been very large at this time. Okay, He talks about many thousands that are saved and that are zealous of the law. Uh, there would have been many elders that came together with James. And by the way, just as a side note, this is James, the brother of Jesus. Okay, y'all remember that? Remember him? That up until Jesus died, James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after Jesus resurrected, then he believed. James the apostle, Peter, James, and John, he's already been killed. And this is James, the brother of Jesus. He becomes the pastor of the Jerusalem church. And James is walking this fine line of trying to appease the Jews and trying to lead them in the gospel. And it's a difficult thing because their culture and their religion is so much of their identity. And so Paul brings this offering to James, to the elders, and he stands before them and he gives a report of his travels. It says here in uh, verse 19, And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Whenever it says he declared particularly, that means he was going item by item, line by line. He's going through and not just saying, hey, we had a ton of people saved. He's going through and he's saying, we went to this city and we met these believers and these people got saved and we discipled them and we were here for this long and we've seen this happen. These miracles were done. These people uh, had these changes that took place in their life. All of these things happen, right? And we went to the next place. And I was beaten there and throughout the city. But there were believers there. Now there's a thriving church, even though I got throughout the city. And I moved on. To, and he went through particularly place by place and was telling about there's a church here and many people saved. There's a church here and many people saved. There are believers here. There are believers here. There's believers on this island and in the city. We went all the way to Europe and over in Greece, over in Corinth, all these places. There are believers all throughout this land and they are Gentiles that have become part of the family of God. They have entered into the fold under our one shepherd. And I can imagine him being excited about this. If you've ever heard um, maybe some of the, the exciting stories from foreign fields and things going on and how God is moving. And I can imagine that would have been kind of how it was there, except the Jews were very skeptical and they still were prejudiced against the Gentiles. So Paul is excited about this, and all of the Jews are probably uneasy as he's recounting these things, okay? And so Paul is hoping that the news of what God is doing, that God has put his stamp of approval on it, that God is working, God is moving, that this is going to move the hard hearts of the Jewish believers, okay? And so in verse number 19 that I just read, it says... He declared particularly what things God had wrought. Paul was always careful to give God the glory. He didn't say, look at me, look at the great things that I have done. Look at what I've accomplished. He says, look at how God is moving. Look at the things that God is doing. God has put a stamp of approval on this. And so we come down to verse number 20. And it says, and when they had heard it, they glorified the Lord. It's a great response, right? They've heard the update. They glorified the Lord. They're praising God for what God has done. And it would have been good if it would have stayed there. Right? There's no record that there's ever any a never any gratitude toward Paul and toward the Gentile believers for the gift that they have given. Right? There should have been a celebration for the work that was accomplished. But they did glorify God. But in the middle of verse number 20, they glorified the Lord and said. You ever start off well and then keep speaking whenever you should have remained silent? Okay. I think that's going on here in verse 20. And said, Thou seest, brother, at least they're owning him, right? Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. Now, in this passage, there is a little bit of question about the tone and the attitude that's taken. Okay? 
Because instinctively for me, I look at this, especially with the context, and I read into it almost a defense or a comparison because Paul just came and gave a great report of all that God is doing amongst the Gentiles and all the thousands of Gentiles that are being saved. And as soon as he tells them this, they say, well, praise God for that, but let me tell you what's been happening here. And in a way, the way that I read this, and I may be wrong, okay, it's as if they are defending their position, as if there is still this division between the Jews and the Gentiles. There is still a jealousy between Paul's ministry and the ministry of the Jerusalem church. And they're saying, Paul, I'm glad for you. I'm glad things are going well amongst the Gentiles, but we've got our own thing going on over here. You ever been in that position? You know, you're excited about what God's doing. You're excited about what's going on in your life. And then somebody comes in and they're just like the wet blanket to protect your fire. And so that seems to be what's going on here. Now, it may be, just to give a, a, an alternate view of this, okay? It may be that James is trying to walk this tightrope. And he's saying, I'm glad that things are going well with the, the Gentiles, but this is what I'm dealing with. And so, Paul, we need to work together to keep this from becoming a problem before it becomes a problem, okay? So you can take your pick which way you want to look at it, whether the, the Jews are being a little bit critical, a little bit condescending toward Paul and uh, minimizing his, his, his ministry, or if they are trying to, cover, trying to cover the bases, if you will, to keep thing keep a lid on things because James understands that the Jews, excuse me, the Jewish believers are all zealous of the law, that they have all heard about, they've all heard rumors about Paul, that Paul is trying to dismantle what they believe, and they don't like Paul. And now Paul's in the city giving this great report of what's going on, and now the Jews are going to be mad. Okay? And so Paul's hopes for unity, his hope for the, the Jews to receive him and to receive this news and to celebrate and be glad over it is very short-lived. And so rather than being encouraged whenever he comes back to Jerusalem, he comes to them and says, we're glad for everything that's going on there, but you need to be quiet about it here because you're going to have problems. Right? And so anyway. But also those guys had a Nazarite that wrote um, vow on them at that stage before that. Mm -hmm. So they had to finish off their vow. Mm -hmm. You know? So these guys are saying to Paul, hang on, you need to go with it with them, mm -hmm. get your head shaved basically as well. Mm -hmm. Just so the other lot don't think you have left us right. and you're all on the Gentile side. Right. That's how I see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they're kind of building a bridge here. They're attempting to build a bridge. Yeah. Okay? And so, um, verse number 20, they bring out and say, there are thousands of Jews which believe and they are zealous of the law. This is a problem. Okay? Not that they are still practicing their culture and their heritage, but we're finding as they are zealous of the law that they believe, not that it saves them, but it makes them superior. Okay? That is a problem. Not only that, but they are still practicing things that Christ already fulfilled. But that just means that they have a long ways to grow. Okay? See, in 70 AD, that would have been somewhere around 15 or 20 years after this, maybe not even that, maybe just 10 or 12 years after this, God causes the Romans to destroy the city, uh, well, not the city, they causes the Romans to destroy the temple. And the reason why the temple was destroyed is because the Jews couldn't pull out of Judaism. Because basically their religion was an idol, was a god to them. 
the unbelieving Jews continued in dead religion after Jesus had fulfilled Judaism, okay? But it wasn't just that. It was that there was thousands or tens of thousands of Jewish Christians who were still tied to that temple, and God got rid of it, okay? It was an idol for them. They had to get past it. And so anyway, in verse number 21, it says that all of these Jews that are zealous of the law are informed of thee. We've been hearing things about you. We've been hearing rumors about you. And James never takes a stand. He never, he, he seems almost as a, as a politician. He's trying to play both sides. Okay. He never takes a stand on this and says, we know that these things aren't so. But he says, we're all hearing that you're going amongst the Gentiles and discouraging the Jews from practicing their Jewish faith. You're trying to get them to abandon their culture. They're trying to get them to, to quit following after Moses, and this is offensive to all of the Jews. And so they're all going to come together whenever they hear about this, and there's going to be a riot. There's going to be a problem. So to keep this from becoming a problem, verse 23, do what we say. Now, you would think someone as the Apostle Paul wouldn't take too kindly to that. Not only that, but what they suggest for him to do, what Kev was talking about there a minute ago, they said, we have four men here who have taken a Nazarite vow. This would have been something that was prescribed in the Old Testament law. It was a time that they would set themselves apart. They would not cut their hair. They would not shave. They would not eat any fruit of the vine whatsoever. They wouldn't come around anything dead. And this was a time of separation and dedication to the Lord. At the end of this vow, they were to come and they were to offer up an offering. And the offering would have been basically three animals times four men. We'll see where that comes in in a minute. So there have been 12 animals in this that they were going to be sacrificing at the temple for this vow. Okay? And a problem that comes in in this is the temple has been made obsolete. The veil has already been torn. The priesthood has been done away with because Jesus is the high priest. He's also the final sacrifice, but they are still participating in all of that, okay? But what the religious leaders say, what James says here is, Paul, in order to appease all of these Jewish believers that are zealous of the law, prove to them that you're still a good Jew and that you're still keeping the law. And if you'll do this one thing, if you'll go through this process that is extremely Jewish in nature, everyone will see that the things that they've been hearing are not true. Okay? Now, my thoughts on that is, wouldn't it have been a lot better if James would have just came out, if the elders would have just came out and said, we talked to Paul and we are thoroughly satisfied that these things are untrue, so don't believe what you're hearing about Paul. He's doing a good work amongst the, the Gentiles and God is saving the Gentiles just like the Jews. Wouldn't that have been a lot better way to go? But anyway, they put on Paul this unnecessary, uh, almost like a game to try to appease the Jews and says, okay, we need you to go and go through this ritual of purification. Whenever Jews had spent time abroad in Gentile lands, when they returned to Jerusalem, they would then purify themselves, cleanse themselves, wash away the filth of the Gentiles. Okay? That was the idea. As I said, we're filthy Gentiles. But anyway, that was what they would do and said, so, okay, Paul, we want you to purify yourself to show them that you're still a good Jew, you're still practicing, and go with these men who have this vow and be at charges to them. In other words, pay their way, buy these 12 animals. This is going to be an expensive game, okay? We want you to go and pay for these animals that they're going to have to sacrifice and whenever they see you in the temple, whenever they see you with these Jews that have taken this vow, whenever you are participating in all of these things, they're going to know these things were not true and everything will be all right. And we will stave off this riot. Everyone will be happy. Right? And Paul submits himself to it. Not because he believes in this purification, not because he's offering up sacrifices, not because he's making Nazarite vows, but because he is all things to all men that by all means he may win some, right? 
And so he is willing to sacrifice his comfort. He's willing to sacrifice his finances. He's willing to sacrifice his preferences to submit to this now obsolete um, obsolete practice just in order to try to bring unity and try to appease these Jews. Okay? And I've, I've got to stop here. But Paul's attitude toward this thing that they're having him to do is a great lesson to us. Because what happens for us whenever there is someone who tries to impose something on us, whenever there is someone who... Uh, has preferences or convictions that make us maybe uncomfortable, we kick against those, don't we? Well, I've, I've, I know that that's not right. I know that that's not important. And they have these, these preferences. They have these convictions. But I'm not going to let them impose those on me because I've got liberty in Christ, Right? But Paul says, I'm a more mature believer, and if this is what it takes to keep from offending them, I am willing to take the hit. I'm willing to pay the price for them. See, the difference in this is what we often do is we look at ourselves. We look at our freedom. We look at our comfort. We look at what we are able to do rather than what's best for maybe the weaker brethren. We say, I want to uh, I want to hang on to my rights and my freedoms and all these things, and I don't care who gets upset about it. Paul said, I'm going to put the good and the health of those who are around me even above my own self. And so he subjected himself to this. He probably wasn't happy about it, but if that's what it took to not be an offense or a stumbling block to the Jews— he was willing to submit himself to it. And so he did. And where we're going to be at next week, because we're out of time today, verse 27, And when seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him come into the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. So now he's in bondage. Now he's in prison, right? And so Paul does what they have led him to do, what they have told him to do. He's playing their games, he's jumping through their hoops, and he goes to the temple, and the Jews, not the Jewish believers, but the Jews see Paul, the Christian, in the temple. They assume that he has brought Gentiles there. They believe that Paul is an apostate, that he has left the faith, and so they stir up a, a mob. They make a riot, and they attack Paul, and they start beating him. And in this, we look at it and we're like, Paul had been better off if you never even went to the temple to begin with. The temple's been done away with, right? Spent all the money for the 12 animals. Yeah, he spent the money for the 12 animals to make a sacrifice when Jesus was the final one, right? He's going through a purification ritual whenever he is purified in Christ. And he is going before all of the Jews when they hate him, basically sent as a lamb to the slaughter, right? He never brought that far as. No. No, you got to the last day. On the seventh day, when they, they were supposed to do it, mm -hmm. they never went as far as that. So he probably God purchased them. I think God intervened. Mm -hmm. It's possible. You know what I mean? Kept him from I'm making the sacrifice. I'm your sacrifice, mm -hmm. you don't need that. Mm -hmm. So, with all of this happening, Paul's come to Jerusalem. He's brought the offering. He's brought the good report. He is living for Christ. He is following the Holy Spirit. And he is seeking the good of everyone else. And now this is happening to him. Right? So final thought on this. One question that people always ask. Why does bad things happen to good people? Right? Right? Paul's just done everything right. He's done everything selflessly, and now he's beaten and he's going to be in prison. And so why does bad things happen to good people? There are several things that I could go into that, but God is using this 
for his ultimate good and his glory. God's still in control, even whenever everything looks like chaos. And thankfully, throughout this entire process, God has prepared Paul. He knew what was going to happen. I can imagine as he's going into the temple, he's like, okay, when's it going to happen? He goes in the first day, the second, finally on the seventh day. Here they come. They start stirring up the crowd. He's like, okay, it's on. They said it was going to happen. Here it comes. No, it wouldn't take long. But then whenever the word starts traveling back through Ephesus and back through Corinth and all of those areas, they're going to hear Paul's in prison. Like, yeah, he told us that was going to happen. And they were prepared for it. And so they were confirmed in their faith. They were confirmed because Paul says, I'm willing to do this and God's going to use it. Right? So I better quit. Does anyone have any comments or anything to add to what we've looked at this morning? Okay, if no one has anything, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer and we'll take a short break. Dear Lord, we come to you today once again. Just thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account of Paul's life and uh, how he was uh, resolved to follow you no matter what. And Lord, how he was an example of faithfulness, even in difficulty, even in persecution, Lord. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us, Lord, to uh, uh, be more like Paul and not uh, not be uh, so stuck in our ways and stuck in our uh, culture and our preferences and stuff like the Jewish believers. But Lord, help us to uh, seek not our own, but seek out every every other man's good. Lord, we just thank you for being so good to us. I ask you to meet with us and guide us and help us, Lord. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.